Hi, I'm Ulysses, and you are listening to Music, Meaning, and Mystery Podcast. This podcast is a pilgrimage to the mystery of music, and I'm glad to have you along. Today we have a conversation with Brian Cotnoir. Brian is an alchemist, studying the relationship of alchemy to music. He has a course on this topic, which you can take, and the information on how to register to this course will be in the show notes. I thought maybe a good way to lay some groundwork about what alchemy is and as how we're going to talk about it in this show would Mm -hmm. be to ask you what it is that you do that defines you as an alchemist or identifies you as an alchemist. I guess it was Pablo Picasso. Why does he consider himself an artist? He goes, because I make art. Right. (laughs) I'd be a plumber if I did plumbing. So, you know. Right. Um, But that is actually, uh, I don't mean to be flip, but that is actually the short answer, is that um, I've worked with this material for a very long time, probably over 50 years now, um, since I started reading and experimenting in traditional, you know, primary source alchemy. Um, so I work on a level on a variety of things, uh, meaning actual laboratory alchemy, working with, um, you know, plants, minerals, metals, these things. But my real interest, I mean, it's, it's, that's the alchemical work, but then how that alchemical work externally integrates and activates the internal work. And how you will find that in a variety of alchemies where you will have both the outer and the inner kind of spoken of, not necessarily very clearly on the inner thing, because it's, I wouldn't say assumed or taken for granted. To be more specific about this, um, refer uh, what I have in mind right now is some work by uh, Zosimos and um, an early Greco-Roman Alexandrian alchemist around the fourth century and his work. And this is one place where you do find this idea of a of an outer practical material work that's going on. At the same time, you get indications that there's a there's an inner aspect of it as well. And the way it's phrased in these texts, the material work is spoken of quite clearly. They're using terms that you have to kind of figure out what those terms are pointing to. But you get a sense that it's speaking of a particular process. And if you could just decode that in a sense, you could work out that process. But in and amongst them are references to uh, hermetic practice and some Gnostic practices. So, for instance, in um, in this text by Zosimos, his, his partner asks him, you know, well, well, you know, how do I do this, basically? And then he gives this quote. He goes, well, subdue, you know, subdue the passions, silence yourself, turn this way, and, and uh, the other 12. Now, this idea of the other 12 is a direct quote in reference to um, uh, the Corpus Hermeticum, where there's a line in there about, okay, how do I, how do I ascend to the one, essentially? And it was like, well, first you must conquer the 12 fatalities uh, that are within you. It's like, do I have these? And he goes, yes, what are they? And starts to name them. And it's a similar. So what you find in these are they're practical works that are going on. But at the same time, it's the idea that it's 
opening up or engaging an inner geometry as the greater cosmos and the universe and things has a geometry of the soul, so to speak. Uh, so does the microcosm. And so this is what, by working externally, um, you start to awaken these resonances within. And where that starts to show up is in dream, actually. In dream or in odd coincidences, if you know what I mean. So this is the idea. This is this is really what sort of that alchemical work that I'm engaged in is is really about, is exploring that idea. Part of that is also understanding that alchemy as it describes a creative act, right? This is what the Emerald Tablet is, one of the earliest sort of like a 13-verse poem on creation. What, what, what are the basic rules and uh, how does the universe function? And in there, this text can be read both as an inner process as well as an outer process. And you find in around the first, second century AD, you find a text in the Nag Hammadi library that actually speak in a very similar language that's referencing and quoting the Emerald Tablet, but is in the same language of an alchemical text that is both quoting the Emerald Tablet as well. And it's about this idea of ascent and descent of unification of opposites and, and these kinds of things. So what you find in alchemy, in a more complete or whole alchemical sense, and not all alchemy is like this. Right? There are different periods, different times, different focuses by different folks, and what they're working on, sometimes it is just purely material, right? such as uh, Isaac Newton Boyle, the alchemist of around the 17th century. But also in the 17th century, it becomes like this purely spiritual thing. Um, Jacob Burma... Uh, there's another mystic, Jane Lead, and um, they were mystics around the 17th century that wrote in very alchemical language, but were not practicing laboratory. So you have that range of things. But you will find points where the two are kind of engaged and activated together. And you find that in areas of early, um, is, uh, not early Islamic alchemy, Islamic alchemy as well as Greco-Roman. Uh, and in some of the early or mid-period Western alchemy, you'll see hints of that. And so this is, that's what I do. <laughs> so that's what they were doing. And so they were alchemists. That's why I call, that's why I say I work within an alchemical tradition. And then at the end of it, I try to express what I've found. I would say all of it is, uh, you know, in, is an investigation, an ongoing investigation. I can't go, Eureka, that's it. That's the answer, the only answer. It's this is what it's looking like to me from where I stand right now after doing all this I've done. And then I try to put it out, either through uh, books, zines, things like that. And I feel that that's also part of that alchemical tradition of sort of then doing research on it, putting it out, communicating the ideas with others, and it's not like I hide anything in there. I think most of the work I do is, is rather extraordinarily transparent in what I'm trying to say. But at the same time, there are deeper links if you want to play, so to speak. Um, and that's how I see like the zine work. They're more like uh, trailheads is what I call them. If you're interested in a, this particular topic, if I were to go deeper into it, this is pretty much my starting points. Right? So the bibliographies, 
uh, the frameworks, the ideas, the questions. Um, so I guess that's kind of a long answer as to why I would think of myself as doing alchemy. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's, it's very subtle understanding of your craft, I guess you could say. I'd be interested in maybe a brief example sure. of what you may have done, because you gave us like a pretty high level overview. So well, that's it. it. That's it. Um, so, for instance, uh, the work I've done starts from like a, what I think most people will start with is sort of an herbal alchemy because it's an easier way, safer way. It works with all the same principles and you don't have to necessarily worry about blowing up your neighborhood or, you know, poisoning your neighbors, so to speak. But actually the areas that I'm really and have been doing some work on is the, the Alexandrian, the Greco-Roman. And so what I've tried to do is... Um, and this is what I've done with the, you know, the European and the others is to kind of break down what the experiment could be or what the work could be, develop a protocol and then try to enact it. Right. And then from there, you, you know, you see things that resonate with the writing sometimes. And sometimes it's just it's like, OK, it's mud <laughs> that didn't work back to the drawing board. But usually you get some lineups, you get some things that verbally match. Right. You know, there's a stretch there. So, for instance, I'll give you some examples here. In the Greco-Roman tradition, and this has to do with the color sequences in the great work, the idea of transmuting matter and bringing it to perfection. Right? So with alchemy as material alchemy, we understand this as traditionally transmuting lead into gold. Right? And that makes sense in the view of creation that sees metals as being on a spectrum. Right? that all metals are really one thing, or actually four things, the four elements that comprise them, made up of different, different proportions of purity, impurity, and depending on the mix, you either have lead, which is really undeveloped impure, or you have gold. And then you have the metals in between, copper, iron, so on and so forth. And mercury is the root of these, this liquid that can be, once you blend it with sulfur and put it into the earth and bake it and cook it in a certain way, it will evolve through these stages. So this is what the alchemist does. It takes that imperfect thing that nature has left imperfected, and then through insight, knowledge, the grace of God, what have you, comes to understand um, what these proportions, what these harmonies are, and can then bring that material thing through these various stages to perfection. And that's one of the definitions of alchemy, is bringing something to its final perfection. So there, in the metal sense of it, or material sense of it, you're taking something that already exists, but has not come to its perfection because of, you know, uh, poor conditions, poor blend of elements, these sorts of things, right? So the alchemist comes in, takes that, figures it out, and moves it on. The same thing can be said about the soul. The imperfect, the, the, you know, in the Gnostic sense, the imprisoned soul in the body that goes through these stages of purification and opening so that at some point the unification with the one, that perfection of the soul can occur. And so, um, so that's what it's attempting to do in its outcome. On the material level, it's working with, um, basic metals. In the Greco-Roman tradition, to keep it simple, it's lead and copper combined. 
And this is known as the first matter, the prima materia, which is also a term that has other meanings, right? Uh, deeper philosophical ones, but in this case, it means the stuff you're starting to work with. What do you take with? So what the idea is, you take this lead prima materia, you break it down through this process, and it's what's known as the black stage, because it does. It turns into this blackish sludge. It's basically opening up the body. The next stage is a whitening stage, uh, where that imp the impurities are removed and it's whitened. Right? The next stage is um, it breaks back down again and um, is a yellowing or reddening stage. Right? This is where uh, the new soul is emerging or has come and, has, and is about to reach its perfection. And then the fourth stage is, it's called eosis, uh, which is like a rust, um, but it's also the color violet. And this is indeed what the end product is, right? Is this, is this violet colored powder, known as the powder of projection, or eventually turns into the, referred to as the philosopher's stone. There are references in, in the books about what they're doing. And so what I've done is attempted to try to figure out what that was and kind of did, I believe, right? Um, so there's this idea of taking, a bit of taking a bit of lead, you add silver, you break this down. Basically what you're doing is it, it's, it's lead and copper combined is what you're working with. But essentially what the system, what the process is, is what we refer to today as uh, depletion gilding. Right. So what they were doing is uh, taking copper and lead mixture, right, breaking that down through the circulation device that had a very crude kind of sulfuric acid involved that would break it all down. Um, once that was done, it was fused, melted again, uh, but with a little bit of the seed of silver placed in it. Right. And once you do that, uh, you've made this alloy. Right? That is copper and silver with some lead left over, um, and then you treat that you treat that with certain with certain compounds that they talk about, um, and what that does is it removes all the other remaining copper and lead, leaving silver on the surface, and so what you end up having is a whitening state. It turns it turns this uh, to a silver color. You then repeat the same process again, breaking it down, but now you add the seed of gold. Right, and what you end up with going through all these things again is indeed metal that is pure gold on the outside, some silver on the inside, and copper. And they knew that this they, they weren't transmuting because they would always refer to this as philosophical gold. This isn't the gold of ordinary people. This is a gold that has been used philosophically. It's like the monochord. Right? The monochord isn't a musical instrument. It's a philosophical instrument. It's one that you use to analyze and to study the universe. And this is the context that this alchemy is, is developing in, is this idea of using uh, our material engagements with the world to find the harmonies of the world and uh, to dig into it that way. And so in doing this, right, and then trying, I didn't do this like with one piece and bring it through all the stages. I did it with various pieces, bringing it through the stages. The fourth one is, is once you have that gold, is essentially going through a process that you create what's known as a purple of Cassius. It's a, it's a gold powder pigment, but is a purple powder. And so when you read back across it, like one of the things, one, here's the thing that was that, 
after you've gotten the alloy out and before you do the pickling, you do the pickling, but you also have to hammer it. And you've got to hammer it a lot, right? It's this, it's this kind of metalworking thing where you put it in the pickle, it does its thing, you hammer it, hammer it, hammer it, it flakes some stuff off, you do more, you do more. I've, as I was working on this, I had gotten this one book by Zosimos. It was a recent translation from Arabic of, of the work and was reading through this. And in it he goes, and one of the secrets of this is you must hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer, right? And so you find these kind of resonances with it where you're doing something and you realize, oh, I need to do this. And then there it is in the text saying, oh, yeah, one of the tricks is you really need to hammer this. That could also be interpreted as how you break up a mineral, right? You've got to really hammer it and grind it and grind it and grind it. And there are other ways you could read these same processes as using different compounds. So this is one of the interesting things about um, the uh, Alexandrian alchemical process for the most part, the main transmutational ones, so to speak. They really are more of a nest, it's a protocol that works with a symbolic language, but you can you can plug not almost anything in, but pretty much almost anything in, right? For instance, you can also talk about the whitening stage as um, vaporizing mercury, right, with a copper plate above it. And what ends up happening is the mercury coats the copper. <laughs> One of my first... Um, Oh, alchemical initiations. I was probably about 12 and there was this older kid said, hey, I want to show you something. And they broke open a mercury thermometer, poured the mercury in their hand, uh, took out some copper pennies and then rubbed it in her, rubbed it in her palm to coat the pennies with the mercury, turning them silver. And we had about four or five of them. And then she goes, let's go buy candy. <laughs> it's like... Because they pass for dimes. Um, they really look like silver. But this is actually a very old Greco-Roman technique. And then in doing that, right, you are engaged in an activity, but there's stuff that goes on on the inside, which is the more you do something, the more likely you are to have a dream about it. And the more likely you are to have dreams about it, the more likely you are to at some point awaken in that dream. And this is... This is what's referred to in some of these texts. How do I know this? Well, you know, when you're there, you'll see. And then it's a question in that space to engage in the work, whatever work that may be, and then pay attention, right? And this is what, when you read through, like uh, early alchemical, the Zosimos uh, sort of material, you'll find these references. In there. And they're sometimes just simple lines. Like one of them is, Tells you the whole dream technique in one line, right? He's, Zosimos is working on a problem. I'm working on this, working on this, working on this. And saying these things, I went to sleep. I, then I had a dream, right? And that's what it is. Saying these things, I went to sleep. You're programming the mind. Your, your mind is focused on this. And either you're going to have a dream or a solution that will point to the outside, right? That you can then bring out into the world in an act or something that will point you deeper inward, right? And both are alchemical dreams. This is what I've been kind of exploring and working with. I don't know where we started, but that's where we ended up. <laughs> yeah, so we were looking for examples. I was trying to 
Right. You know, well, for, that, I think I gave some, right? I'm yeah. making the, the metals and this and then the hammering and then finding that within the text. So, yes, I have, you know, I mean, little pieces of alchemical silver and alchemical gold made through this process. I mean, it, you know, don't get ready. Don't get so excited. It, it really is depletion gilding. If you, if you do jewelry working, you can study this. It's uh-huh. like you can go online and look up depletion gilding. Mm-hmm. This was referred to um, in Pliny natural history as Corinthian gold uh, because it was, <clears throat> and gates, uh, I guess some of the gates of Jerusalem were made with Corinthian gold, right? Because it's gold on the outside, it's lighter, so it's actually, it has a lot of, I mean, you can see an artist and an architect going, hmm, king wants gold. That's going to be really expensive and really heavy. What if we were to, right? And that's what they did. They made this thing called Corinthian gold. And so it's lighter, looks like gold, cheaper and easier. But it's a process and a known process. And that's the other thing, if I may interrupt just one. Uh, that's the sure. other thing in here is that uh, Zosimos' partner, Theosabia, asks him, it's like, why do we keep all this secret? He goes, well, because if we didn't, people would misunderstand it and think of it just as glass making. So he's referencing the fact that what they're doing is really kind of ordinary, everyday kind of artesian, well, which is rather high-end at that time, artisanal work, right? Metalsmithing, goldworking, glassmaking, these kinds of things. But there is a much deeper inner spiritual process that's being engaged with, right, that it's like it's like martial arts in a way, you know, like a deeper spiritual martial arts where you you know get your ass kicked, but you know you're learning inner focus kind of a thing. For me, alchemy isn't just about you know getting into the lab and making some tinctures and and things like this. Absolutely necessary, but and it's not just an inner meditative thing. To me, it's that, and what that indicates is that then any art, any creative practice that is making something out of nothing right or changing something into something else can be used as the basis for an inner practice that's a good um segue to your zine because uh i bought your zine uh, at uh, kepri press and all the links are going to be in the show notes uh, called alchemy and music sound text and vision and it's i found it extraordinarily dense Yes, and uh, it's a seed. Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you specifically about one. Well, there's a couple of things. Oh, I'm one, sure. <laughs> at one point, you make just one line about listening to the sound of the dream, or listening to the music behind the dream. Or, mm-hmm. or something like that. If uh, I could, can you I tell can, me where that is? Yeah, uh, let me see. Let I me see if I can find it. That one. I may have hallucinated that. One. <laughs> okay, it's let not me. Immediately apparent in my. Uh, okay, I'm gonna um, try to find it. Maybe I hallucinated it. You found it, or maybe. What page? Uh, I'm on I'm on sixteen. Uh, might be this. Yes, and so back to is it Scipio or Scipio? Uh, Scipio. Scipio. Oh, sixteen. Yeah, 
And so back to Scipio's dream of his ascent through the heavens, where he hears the harmonia of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. What is this loud and agreeable sound that fills my ears? That is produced, he replied, by the onward rush and motion of the spheres themselves. I am interested in this as a model to explain mm -hmm. the origin of sound and music. It reminds me of something that I read in Dante, mm -hmm. where it's talking about how the realm of God is oh, yes. one that is subtle, but as it rubs up against our dense world, it, exactly. that's what makes sound. Yeah. What, this what is, the is that? The, this is the harmony of the spheres. This is... This is the idea that um, it's basically with all that movement up there, it can't be quiet is basically is what it's saying. Um, and there are various ideas as to what it is. Some say, well, it's not really, um, it's not, it doesn't really make a sound. Some will say, well, okay, how come if it's, if it, these big massive, this is what it says, how could a body is that big? or that whatever, moving in space, because anything that moves in space makes sound. How come we don't hear it? Right? Uh, some of the early philosophers said the reason why we don't hear it is because it is around us all the time. So we don't hear it. Like, this is like we don't hear air conditioning. Um, or as they said, like, you know, by these waterfalls, people who live by waterfalls, they don't hear it, right? They don't hear it anymore. That's what it is here. Others were saying, well, it's only evolved or, you know, very, 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 very sensitive individuals who can hear this. So someone like Pythagoras, who wrote about the harmony of the spheres, was able to hear it because he could, because he's Pythagoras. Okay, but what, what are the spheres here? Uh, the spheres here are uh, the planets, right? So okay. the, planets, the planets we, we say now move in an orbit. Right. What uh, some models, some of the ancient models was that it was actually a sphere and that on it was a either a hole where light would come through or uh, an object of some kind, a ball of fire that was in that sphere. Right. So you had the earth. They, they also thought the earth was a sphere also. Right. They didn't have a flat earth thing. And then around that would be air. Uh, the next one around that would be fire. Uh, the next sphere around that would be the sphere of the moon. And then Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, uh, and Saturn. And then the fixed stars and then infinity. So this is like creation was looked at like this condensed something you know, with the earth nest nestled in a nest of spheres. So the idea was that this sort of celestial machine would be like kind of it's, cranking it's, along and the friction would make a sound exactly or the movement would make a sound okay something would make a sound now what um one way of looking at it is well what's happening here is that yes there's a movement that is creating a friction and it's a very material thing and this is what's happening and so a lot of philosophers in the past talk about it that way Others say, well, actually, what we're referring to are the proportions of those planets to each other in the spheres. 
so you can get ratios of you know opposition one to one these types of things which are actually musical proportions so i suggest like in the zine i have a piece of music and i'm saying anybody who is a really accomplished musician and can read music can hear this music in their head by looking at it, right and what i'm suggesting is perhaps someone like pythagoras or someone like anybody who's really studied proportion musical proportion and then can look at um a chart of planetary relationships, see those proportions and then hear those proportions because, well, they know how to, mm-hmm. just as someone who can read sheet music can hear it in their head. Right. Which right. I am always, I mean, the folks that do that are like deities. You know, I'm reminded of a Stephen Wright joke, you know, the comedian Stephen oh, Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said that he would uh, sit on his roof and wear glasses with a musical staff on it and play the stars. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Or is he just being funny? I, well, it's part of his, his No, uh, I know that. I, act, I, put a, right? I, put a, I put a humidifier and a dehumidifier in the room and let him fight it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's part it of his act. And sometimes he'll just like unleash something yeah. poetic there, right? But that's really, that's yeah. really kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? So that here's the other thing. Here's just, the other thing. Oh, Clay, go ahead. Just, just one thing, because that that would I want to dwell on the implications of that. Yeah, yeah. Because that means uh, that all of life would be a musical score. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that is only. It's all dance. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's uh, you actually refer to. Uh, Hazrat, who wrote the the, the book uh, Music oh, yeah, of Life, yeah, and he he was sort of making that case too. It's it's if you pay attention, you'll see that all is musical. Well, I think it's also you know it's rhythm, it's heartbeat, it's it's you know I think it comes right down to you know body touch and earth. You've started a musical project based on the, sort of this premise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that so, would be good for us to to learn about that as musicians, to to kind of get an idea of how a musical endeavor that is that is informed by this wisdom would look or like. Exploring it, exploring it. Is yeah. Good. So it's tell us about like this. I know what mus- I'm doing. No, <laughs> well, who no, does? no, I mean, I think that's very important to say, uh-huh. um, right? Because here's what I'm doing. Like all my work in alchemy has, and I look at different aspects of things and stuff, right? One of the things that always comes up with alchemy is as you're doing things, it's this idea of proportion. And they will say it's about weight and proportion. Once you understand that, change can happen, right? And it's a very interesting idea. And the thing is, is that... Um, This is how health was understood, right? The proportion of the elements in your body, the humors, how they were. And there's four of them. And and you'll even find it in early writings on disease where it will get into, oh, like how fevers will break down, right? Three-day, four-day, weekly, these proportions. Um, Gestation of mammals, of humans, what have you. They, they, they saw it having like these four to three, three to two, two to kind of ratios that you find in um, very early music or, or harmony theory. Um, 
And so that's what intrigued me. And then always this idea of just change. I mean, this is what alchemy really is about. So that in and of itself interests me. And then music is also used as, um, you'll find this in early writing, Greco-Roman writings, uh, Byzantine writings, how they use music as an example or as a way to explain it, alchemy. And so all these things kind of like sort of pointing my mind, you know, kind of to that. And we all know, and actually in my, my last book, uh, Alchemy, the Poetry of Matter, I, I, I write a little bit about this because I, I look at it in terms of how geometry explains the inner process with alchemy. But then music also does. But here's the thing with music. It actually has an, it has an impact on us. And what has always amazed me is we know how to... As a musician, I'm sure you know how to make someone cry, right? I'm sure you can play something that will get somebody up and move. It, it's like, I, okay, you understand what I mean, but you may not be able to say why, how, how does this happen, right? Some of the early uh, writers, the philosophers did. This was uh, also Pythagoras, and these were the different modes that they spoke of. And so different modes coming from different areas, modes were sort of tunings that were specific to certain regions in Greece that had characteristics. And so they felt that since those characteristics came into the music from these people, if you played that kind of music, you will elicit that type of temperament in someone. So it's this idea of resonances. So this is one of the ideas, too, that's in, in, in this work. And the other tie-in here that is really interesting to me and was the thing that was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this inner aspect of alchemy, this idea of the ascent of the soul. One of the transitory points in this in the early writings is the moon. The moon is an intermediary stage. It's neither fully divine up there, nor is it fully material. It shares in both or is neither. And then in the Neoplatonic uh, traditions of the ascent and things, uh, the goddess involved in this is Hikate, right? goddess of crossroads, trans transitions, these sorts of a thing. And in this, it's uh, it, the role that's played is one of a guide and a very important one, because to get through this is the beginning of the ascent into the other one. So this is a very important stage. Uh, one of the things I was also starting to read as reading around the, the myths and the stories in the Neoplatonic traditions, there's a quote that says, in doing so, work with the wheel of Hikate. Right? And I'm like, All right, what is that? So what this turns out to be is basically a drone. It's either a round disc, and there are images of these, right? A round disc uh, that would have a... a leather thong around it that would be pulled and it would spin. And as it spun because of holes or shapes on it and stuff like that would put out a hump or a drone. Um, and then you see these objects, they're called yinges. It's where we get our word jinx from. They were originally thought of as birds that were stretched in a wheel spun for magical purposes to uh, actually at weddings and things to draw people together, right? Uh, but what it really was, it seems, and you can see it on some Greek paintings, and I think I have some images in the alchemy and music zine, I know I do, of um, their discs with uh, 
holes or edges, and if they're spun, they set out a, a tone. And you'll see this in love scenes, because the idea was by doing this, that sound drew opposites together. Right? But it was also called Hikate's top, because it was this idea of opening up in union with and moving up. Um, and then the more I started digging around this, it, it, a lot of things started to suggest them, such as vowels, right? Planetary associations with vowels, planetary associations with pitch and tone, um, these types of things, and then how those were played within. Some really suggestive uh, descriptions in some oh, very early writings on um, Greek history, whatever, first century AD, 100 BC, something like this, where uh, a space is described that has these large wheels hanging from the ceiling that are tunable. So you get this, and then you start to think, well, were these? I mean, were these very large wheels that were tuned, right? Maybe tuned to some pitch that was associated with the planet because this was a known, known thing. And then you have... Uh, what in later time became known as, uh, in esoteric practice, barbaric sounds or barbaric words. It turns out, or it appears to be, that these are actually musical notation, uh, that they each thing signifies a pitch. And this is something I also touch on in the zine and kind of break down one of these hundred-voweled uh, barbarian words. Um, so there's a lot of things in here that are suggestive and that what, what my project is, I want to explore this, right? So what the first scene, Alchemy and Music, is I lay out the sources. I lay out what the chunks and the elements are. Isn't this interesting? What if that was this? Here's what this is. Why do they associate the strings of the lyre this way with the planets? Uh, what pitch is associated with what? And then it's like, you know, there's a lot to choose from in a sense, but it, it, it also, there's enough of a framework that you can decide a framework, right? And then you can say, okay, this is how I'm going to work with this. And so that's the next stage, right? For myself. In other words, I put this thing out, anybody can go ahead and play with it, right? The next one is another zine that I want to do a flexi disc in the back of my, whatever, whatever noise I come up with. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a musician, I mean, I studied some classical guitar many, many, many years ago, some music theory, but I don't, don't count on it. Um, but I work in film and I do audio tracks and I build soundtracks and I build soundscapes for those. So I would approach this more working with those key ideas and then just kind of building things out of either found sound, made sound, recorded sound, instrumental sound, you know, wh whatever is going to kind of, whatever I could justify, if you know what I'm saying, within that framework to explore it. Then the ultimate thing will be, if it's halfway decent, you know, I'd like to put it onto a flexi disc to put it at the back of that particular, that particular zine. But then I'd like to even, um, if things are interesting enough, uh, before I would do a mix, whatever, just provide stems online, so to speak, right? Just sort of the, the unmixed tracks, so to speak, and just let people have a go at it and have some fun, right? Uh, if you're not a, if you don't have ways to make stuff yourself, but you would like to play with it, here are some of the elements. And then, man, it'd be great if people played around with this and came up with stuff.
you know, get aired on your podcast. <laughs> hey, it would be an honor if, uh, yeah, definitely uh, get in touch. Yeah. When that comes out, we'll. Yeah, this is all fantasy, by the way. I mean, but, you know, so is this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so is the scene, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen any of my work, you know that unless I die, that and even if I do, I'll just be back to do it. That's determination. <laughs> it'll be ugly, it'll be messy, but it'll get done. <laughs> it was well. I mean, the zine, this zine was done on my fire escape uh, from uh, February of 2020 uh, through right just as COVID hit. I took some time. I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So huh. I sat on my fire escape in East Village, hearing all the sirens, which have a lot of reference uh, within this practice. Um, you know, as folks are getting rushed to and from the hospitals here at the peak of it. So it got done. Mm -hmm. So the other one will too. Um, it'll be interesting. I'm just kind of very curious as to how it all, how it all work out. For sure. I think it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to, I appreciate that you're being very, very generous and providing a, a model of what, it could look like for musicians to, to push music in a direction yeah. that um, honors the wisdom of our ancestors, if right, you will. Right, right. Yeah. And, to, and to give it in a way that it's not like I'm saying, oh, this is this, here's the answer, you know. It, it's really it's 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 a way to kind of open up something and to actually start to think about it. A little yeah, bit. yeah. Right. Well, if you look at the history of like electronic music, and it didn't start with like uh, the the house music scene uh, mm -hmm. in, in metropolitan areas. It was uh, Olivier Messiaen doing you know weird ribbon oh, yeah. instruments and sure, sure. It, it all wire wire recordings yeah exactly so it all started by people playing around and poking around at it and if now we take it for granted that uh you know djs are a thing yeah that's right right, right. but it, it's they weren't <laughs> before no, no. so it's the work of these alchemists if you will or perhaps yeah. deliberate or accidental alchemists who mm -hmm. creates the formation creates the character of the dj yeah in well, our I also society find, like early electronic i mean like computerized tape splicing these kind of things also like incredibly insightful um into what they're doing it it, it just approaches sound from a whole other whole other direction when you think of electronic right um you know some of the early computer composers um this type of thing so you've got a course uh coming up in yeah. music um yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the course sure it's exactly kind of what we just talked about it's an exploration what i do what i'll do is um kind of give the frameworks just kind of break it down from the beginning um so what's starts, the name of the course? Yeah, the class is, um, hold on a second, what is the name of the course? Yeah, it's called Alchemy and Music, Matter, Geometry, and the Ascent of the Soul. Okay, so what can we expect as students who would be uh, joining this course? As I said, basically what this will be is 
an over overview and exploration of ideas of alchemy and the esoteric sort of traditions as seen it's applying an alchemical lens to music let's put it that way uh so here's what the breakdown will be like the very very first class it'll go through just sort of the overview introduction alchemy kind of kind of stuff the worldview cosmology what they understood the world to be structured as how it was looking We'll get into uh, the monochord Pythagoras's uh, discovery use of, and then the ideas of how number relates to the world. This is like one of the biggest discoveries of all time that you know number relates to the world and the world relates to number. And from that, uh, a discussion of the music of the spheres, right? Part one, because we'll go deeper into this each time. And then there's a, a, a work, um, it's around the first century. It's a Neoplatonic approach to music. It's actually one of the first books on music theory uh, called Three Books on Music. So I want to just briefly touch, discuss that, and kind of give a, a, an overview of it. Um, a lot of what this will do is um, provide resources, uh, direction and resource. I always start out each class with a very extensive bibliography and then sort of a rundown. It's basically everybody on a page where you kind of have the basics, but then you can go forward. Uh, the second class will focus more on these ideas of the inner work, uh, Neoplatonic, hermetic ideas of ascent of the soul, because it ties into it deeply. Uh, then also, um, again, with the music of the spheres. And then we start getting into um, Hikate, some of the myths around um, the hymns to Hikate and how these things work. And, um, and then how shall I put it? Alchemy as uh, ascent through descent, right? how alchemy works with starting here, but we descend into matter in order to do the ascent. And this relates very much to what they speak about in the uh, Neoplatonic tradition and why like Hikate is sort of the goddess of it all at this point. Um, and then in the third class, it really is an exploration of uh, what I call planets, pitch, and vowels, right? Different systems, how these link up, how this idea came about, uh, vowel singing, one character in particular, or one scholar in particular, Marsilio Ficino from the Renaissance. Uh, he's a Neoplatonic Renaissance, uh, basically the intellectual force behind the Renaissance. He invented the Renaissance, you could say. Um, was the first translator of Hermes, all these things. But he wrote about music and how one uses music and movement to harmonize oneself with it. Um, and then from there, you know, ideas of trance and, trance and ecstasy, music and sound as a material force, right? I want to touch on a little bit. And then the fourth and final class is just really kind of wild speculation, looking at some examples of things that were composed. Um, there's a 17th century work called Atalanta Fugiens by Michael Mayer. Uh, this is comprised of 50 emblems and 50 pieces of music that go with the emblems. It's often considered the first multimedia piece uh, because it has poet, poem, text, image, and then um, a three-line fugue. And there's some really interesting ideas on how he's working with music here. Right? So I want to look at that. And then, again, some things in the Renaissance. Monteverdi, 
I want to touch on very briefly. There's some ideas of certain music phrases acting as emblems, right? So there's a lot of richness here. And then just kind of, you know, open it up to what anybody else has to say. The other thing that's very important is it's like, I would like people to speak up. <laughs> you know what I mean? What I'm, pl- what I'm hoping to do is <clears throat> each one of these things would probably get like a five, 10 minute presentation on my part, giving the outline. And then anybody got something to say on it? Like that knows more than me, particularly like, oh, here's what that means. You know, I'm a musician. I play this type of music. Here's what I think. I'm going to listen. Right. And I, this is what I would like to have happen. Um, the format uh, that Morbid Anatomy has is that there tend to be relatively kind of smaller classes that enable this type of discussion. So um, uh, that's the um, organization hosting the talk. It's a Morbid Anatomy Library. And the talk, oh, the course is Alchemy and Music, Matter, Geometry, and Descent of the Soul. And the first class starts January 6, uh, 22. Cool. I think that pretty much covers it. Um, yeah, so we'll be linking all this up uh, to make sure that people know where it is. So if they're interested, they can get there. I mean, it sounds very, very much a thing that I should do. So probably see you there. Oh, that'd be great. Um, because you play, right? I mean, you're a musician. How about this? You yeah. said there that you you're an alchemist because you do alchemy. So I'm a musician because I do music. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's like, yeah, I, I make noise. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, that's music too. Hmm. Yeah. But, but this is it. This is the time. Are you familiar with uh, John Zorn's uh, Arcana series? No, I know of John Zorn. Okay. Uh, I've heard he of does, that, but yeah, I, I'm Arcana not familiar. Is, um it's a publication. It's a journal. It's a mm-hmm. music journal dealing with music and the esoteric. Mm-hmm. All right. It's um, on my list. Yeah. But it's a long list say, at this folks point. Folks out there who are interested, this would be, this is a, this is a serious resource because the, a lot of the writers in there, a lot of the musicians, whatever, theorists, can, there's some wild stuff in there that's just, all of it is thought provoking. All of it is like, okay, if you can do that, I could do this. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's some really great stuff that is really speaking to what you're questioning. And this is, this is what I find very exciting about all this, is more approaching it as a question, mm-hmm. uh, more approaching it as, gee, what's over there? You know, what can we make with this? That would, and for me, the alchemy is moving, moving me, moving us is to a better place, right? It, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even, even, you know, you know, even if it is rock and roll and a good time, you know, you're still moving people to a good place. But there's this deeper inner stuff that is um, really rich. Right? And we haven't even gotten into like architectural spaces and the impact of sound. I mean, mm-hmm. that is just you know, the Hagia Sophia, the volume of that. This thing's got like a 20 second delay. Oh. Imagine singing in this. Imagine, imagine having fifty. Imagine having a whole congregate. How many? I think it was like eight hundred people can fit in there. A thousand people can fit in this. The Hagia Sophia in uh, Istanbul. Mm. Um, and can you imagine all of them singing? It's like 
and this domed space, I mean, that's got to be an out-of-body experience. Right? Yeah, for sure. When you really think about this. And then, so that becomes uh, an element in my mind in all this of like, okay, what is the space that you're doing this in? And how does that space impact the body? Mm. And then you get into Ficino and it's like, well, it's not only just space and body, it's movement and singing as well. Some really interesting stuff here. Mm. So, so my feeling is, is that anybody who's interested in organizing sound, you know, and has an esoteric bent, will probably find some, some, some things of interest in here to kind of go play with and work with. You know? So, um, right. and I also have a website. I don't do correspondence email. I can't, um, but you know, I do talks. I give, I do stuff. I, I, produce zines and other print matter kind of on a frequent basis. So uh, there's a sign up form on keptrepress.com bottom of the page. Join the list. Indeed. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, so I think it's time for our traditional closing question. Okay. Uh, what should people listen to? Oh God. Um well, you know, speaking of electronic, there's somebody who I really like, Delia Derbyshire, uh, 1960s, 1950s. She did a piece called Dream, and it's, a, it's an audio collage, recorded people's dreams about color and space. It's amazing. And then uh, did electronic composition over it. Uh, the name is, um, I want to make sure I have it right. I know it's Delia Derbyshire. Derby, like Derby? Yeah, Delia Derbyshire, and it's called Dream. Um, to me, it, it, it's it's just a beautiful poetic piece, but it's all uh, you know cut up, recorded, composed, but then with electronic composition behind it. All right. Yeah, um, I think that's it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna call it and okay. stay on the line. We'll do a little bit of admin, and okay, uh, that'll be it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun. I thought about the friction and the sound created by the movement of the divine realms. I realized that I was being a well-behaved materialist when I was thinking about these matters. I have to stop doing that. It's a nasty habit. The sound of the divine realms doesn't necessarily have to be a vibration that hits the eardrum, but it could be a, just a beautiful, harmonious pattern, like a dance, the dance of the stars. Of course, if the stars are dancing, there must be music. As usual. The invitation is to meet me at musicmeaningandmystery.ca and share your notes about these episodes, about music. I also want to remind you about Brian's course with the links in the show notes and also Brian's books and zines that you can find at his website. See you next month. <laughs>